Well, church, we're going back to the book of Colossians today. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. We left off the study of two or three months ago, so we're back to Colossians. Talked about the hope of heaven, verses 1 to 4. So now we pick up verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3, where the apostle Paul says this, But put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, <coughs> impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So two statements before we go to the text. The first statement is this, is that this letter is written to a minority church in the city of Colossae. All New Testament letters are written either to a group of churches or a church that's a minority church in a majoritarian city. And in these letters, it is understood, presupposed, that God, by his Holy Spirit, will build the church. That the supremacy of Christ will energize and carry along the believers. And so these letters say the church is going to be built. God's people are going to grow. There's going to be struggles and heartache, but God is God and he's at work. Uh, that's a word to us today. We live in a time when the boundaries and the goalposts and the definitions are constantly changing. And it can be very frustrating and very defeating if you're a believer. But listen, God is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Therefore, we preach the gospel, we elevate the greatness of Christ, we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I think we find ourselves increasingly in a similar situation today that the church found itself in in the first century. But today, we understand that God is building his church just as the Apostle Paul understood in his day. The second point is this. You look at verse 5 of chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, whatever is earthly in you. So I think that this, this presupposes that, that there is sin that is dwelling in believers. There's something called the Westminster Confession of Faith that has an incredibly, I think, powerful and true statement that as believers, there is a continuous and irreconcilable war in our members. We are never done with sin. We will struggle with sin to the day we die. And yet the Bible says here to put sin to death. So it presupposes that. Understand this. Very important. Paul does not start his letter off by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ Jesus and Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature. No, he, he meticulously, graciously, and gloriously lines out the gospel of grace. And so as we make our appeals to one another in our community groups, our small groups, our discipleship groups, in our families, we always operate from the glorious foundation of the gospel of grace, the glorious foundation of who Jesus is in our lives. Just listen to some of these verses that, that Paul has laboriously leveled out before the people. Chapter 1, verse 12 says this, it says, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you 
to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Behold the gospel of grace. Behold the redemption through the work of Jesus on the cross. And he says regarding this Christ that he is before all things and in him all things hold together in chapter 1. He is the head of all things, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and all things hold together. And he's the head of his body, the church. Behold the glory of Christ. He says in chapter 1, verse 20, and, and, and through him he has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Behold the glory of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, he says, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know, he says, you don't know about wisdom and knowledge? He says they're found in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 13, says, and you were dead, dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with Christ have forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. Behold the glory of the gospel. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. If, if you've been raised with Christ, set your minds to the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your hearts on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Behold the glory of Christ. Put to death, therefore. See, the therefore refers to the previous two chapters and four verses of chapter 3. So here's my concern. As we teach our children and as we encourage one another and walk with one another as brothers and sisters, we need to understand that if we say, puts into death because if you do, you might get embarrassed, or puts into death because, because if you do, you, you, you're going to be whatever. Those are okay arguments. But the superlative argument is, oh, puts into death so you can taste the sweetness of knowing Jesus. Puts into death because of the glory of all Christ has done for you. Puts into death because you're absolutely transfixed by the wonder and the glory of the gospel. Puts into death because when you were dead in your sins, when you were lifeless, God breathed life into your being and he wants to give you the abundant life. So we operate from the foundation of the gospel. So two causes. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. There are some quotes in the, in the worship guide this morning from a guy named John Owen who died in 1688. And his language sounds like 1688, but it is so good. This is from, from a book of about 80 pages called The Mortification of Sin. Let me just read a couple of this comment. It says this. When a man fights against his sin only with arguments from the punishment he will receive, this is a sign that sin has taken great possession of his will. 
And he's involved in what Owen calls a superfluidity of naughtiness. <laughs> he says, if you're, if, you're, if you're arguing against sin only because of punishment or the shame you receive, you're not arguing as a believer. He says, but those who are Christ's and are acted in their obedience upon the gospel principles have the death of Christ, the love of God, the detestable nature of sin, the preciousness of fellowship with God as a deep, grounded, abhorrent opposition to sin. He says this, if you're going to fight sin, behold the glory of Christ. Behold the eternal love of the triune God for your lives. Behold the hope of heaven. Behold, absolutely, the abhorrency and the horrible nature of sin. But that's where we live. Now listen. We are all slaves to something. Um, I, in, in the mid-60s, there was a movie entitled Born Free. It's about some lions, lion cubs. It's a happy movie. And the theme song from that movie was Born Free, as free as the wind blows, as free as the grass grows, to follow your heart, that type of born. And it kind of became a theme song for the culture in the mid-60s. I was barely alive to know that, but they, that, was, that was going on. And it was just this, just, you know, born free. And then about that time, there's somebody named Sammy Davis Jr. from a group of guys called the Rat Pack. You know, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Joey Bishop, Sammy Davis Jr., who sang, I gotta be me. I gotta be me. Whatever that means. But, but, you know, every year people come out with songs about I, I got to be free, I, I got to do my own thing. The, the Bible says that we are all slaves, either of disobedience or of righteousness. Disobedience leads to death. Righteousness leads to life and hope and peace. In Romans 6, Paul argues this with great thoroughness. He says in chapter 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Jesus died on the cross to redeem his people, to give us a new life. He's poured out the Holy Spirit so that we would not be enslaved to sin. Then he says this, verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God. So that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. So if you're here this morning on this campus and you're not a believer in Jesus, to one degree or another, you know, you're a slave of disobedience. If you're a believer, you are, to one degree or another, a slave of righteousness that leads to life and hope and liberty. And then Paul, this is such a great argument. Paul says this. When you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Listen, but, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. 
But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. I, I, love, I love the little phrase. He says, he says but, 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 but what fruit were you getting at that time? Now, I have talked to a lot of older people who were facing death. And I've never, ever, ever heard an older person who's facing death say this. I wish I had chased more women. I wish I spent more nights and weekends and weeks in drunken debauchery. I wish I had cheated my business partner more than I did. Never. I've heard many people say, man, I wish I had the last three decades back. I wish I hadn't acted that way and disrupted my family. I wish I'd heard the gospel sooner. I wish I'd come to know Jesus sooner. Listen, either you're a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. You say, yeah, I'm talking to believers this morning. We are slaves of righteousness. And he says in verse 11 of chapter 6, he says this. So, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. He said, he said listen, he says, believers, don't let sin reign. Don't let it rain. Don't let sin rain in your mortal bodies that you have to obey its passions. And don't go on presenting the members of, of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought back from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. So he says, don't, don't, don't let sin rain in your mortal body. And so, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And we say with great passion, I say with great passion, that, that God is good and he gives good gifts. We also say that every, every sin is a good gift that's gone wrong. It's become an idol. There's a wonderful book that we're reading as a staff entitled The Things of Earth by a guy named uh, Joe Rigney. Let me just read a couple of comments from that book. He says, when we love God supremely and fully, we are able to integrate, great word, integrate our joy in God and our joy in his gifts. Receiving the gifts as shafts of his glory. You know, the meal you'll eat, the embrace you enjoy, the tea or the coffee you'll drink this morning, the laughter is, is, is a shaft of God's glory. God who gives good gifts. James 1 says, God is the giver of good gifts. 2 Timothy 4 says that, that everything is to be enjoyed as is received from God. And he says this, God's gifts become avenues for enjoying him, beams of glory that we chase back to the source. I love that. Beams of glory that we chase back to the source. Every good gift comes from God. And yet you and I both know, we all know, that it's easy for gifts to become idols. Augustine dealt with this. He, Augustine, one of the great teachers of the church, died in 430. In his confession, says this, Stand with him, and you will stand fast. Rest in him, and you shall be at rest. The good that you love is from him. But it is good and pleasant through reference to him. And it shall become bitter if anything is loved which is from him, but he's forsaken in it. In other words, God's wonderful and good gifts 
can become bitter if we don't honor the Lord. So every good and perfect gift comes from God. We want to worship him. And so Paul says, put to death therefore. And he mentions five issues. He says, put to death therefore whatever is earthly in you. And he mentions five things. Sexual immorality. And sexual immorality, the term used here is the, the general term for uh, sexual activity outside of marriage. And he gets more particular. He says sexual immorality, uh, adultery. Adultery is when you leave your marriage relationship, your covenant with your spouse, and you go somewhere else for sexual activity. And then he says passions. Passions are, 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 are things that just are uncontrolled in your life. You, you lay off the discipline and you let passions take over. And fourthly, evil desires, which are desires for that which is forbidden. And then he says covetousness which is idolatry. So, so those five things. And of those five things, at least three of them, maybe four of them, maybe all five of them, deal with sexual issues. So I'm going to make a few comments today about, about this. And I've, I've really very prayerfully thought about this. And I want to keep it PG-13, but I also want to be honest. So, so three points. In this whole area of, of putting to death sexual immorality and impurity and evil desires and passions and covetousness. Number one, we operate from the basis of knowing that God is good and that sex is a good gift from a loving creator who has said this is for the relationship called marriage. It is very good. So as we talk to one another and as we have marriage classes, and as we think about being married or being single, or we say, you know, God in his infinite wisdom has said sex is for marriage. And we live in a culture that mocks that standard. And we live in a culture where, where young people have just been consumed with a, a worldview that says that sexuality is just something you do, it's an itch you need to scratch. And so it, that, that has worked its way into the fabric of the church. I am amazed at the amount of young people who, who live together before marriage. And some of them come to worship. And listen, if you're a young person and you're not married and you're living together, stop. See us. We'll, we'll put you in the home of somebody to, 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 make you, to, to honor the living God. I mean, this is, this is, see, these things, First Peter says, these things wage war against your soul. You know, we, we all struggle with these issues. But we, we want to honor the Lord. Marriage is, a, or sex is a wonderful gift for marriage is to be uh, part of the fabric of, of who we are. So, so we want to honor the Lord with our lives and what we say and do. The second thing is this. We live in what has been called by some people the pornification of America. Last week, the New York Times uh, had a 20-page printed article on how porn is impacting our teenagers. And I asked someone I respect very much to read it and said, I, I want to put it in the bulletin or the worship guide and say, read this. And that person said, well, this, this is a very um, um, tough article. It's informative, but it's tough. It, really, the article was taking an amoral approach to pornography, which is unbelievable to me. So I said, I won't, I won't print it out, but it's February 13th, New York Times, unbelievable article. And what the article says in part is that 
most of our teenagers are receiving their sex education from pornography, which devalues women, which is a horrible thing, which gives them expectations that are beyond realistic. It is a horrible, horrible thing. And, and so I'm, I'm here this morning to say we have, we're living in the, a tsunami effect of pornography. Carl Truman, who's a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, I respect him very much, uh, wrote a book recently. He said that the number one pastoral concern in the West, in America, he's from Great Britain, is pornography. Uh, it, it rewires your brain, it denigrates people, and it, it, it breaks my heart. Um, so, I, 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 there are men and women here who are, have swallowed the hook of pornography. And I'm, I'm pleading with you to put this thing to death but by going to an older woman, if you're a woman or an older man, an elder if you're a young man, and, and saying, I, I, I need prayer, I need encouragement, I need to fast and pray and weep before God because this, listen, it will destroy your life. It will destroy your marriage. I, I was, I, I'm sorry, it's not going to be PG-13. I'm just going to go for it. I was scandalized a few years ago when this movie came out called Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, and there's a woman who I respect very much in the church who came to me and said, I lead the Bible study of young women. And several of the young women think that that is a great book. It's about bondage and abuse. And it is from the pit of hell. And that's what we're, that's what we're, we're, we're exposing ourselves to. And, and we hear this. You hear, you hear my clarion angelic voice on Sunday morning for 40 minutes, maybe. And then you go out the rest of the day, the rest of the week, and you have this drivel pumped into your spirit. That's why we have to live intentionally. In Proverbs 5, is a great book to read about sexual purity. First, I'll give you this. A hundred years ago, in November, World War II ended. We entered the war in 1917. We lost 150,000, a little less, soldiers, men. Nothing compared to France and Britain and Germany and the incredible bloodletting in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But, but, but in, 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 in World War I, you had, our, those are, these are our doughboys. You know, General Pershing was a commander of our troops, and they sailed to France, and Pershing got off of the ship and, uh, in France, and he made this statement, which is one of the greatest statements ever made by an American. He said, Lafayette, we are here. Now, if you don't Lafayette, the French guy that fought for the Americans in the Revolution. What a great line. I mean, it was wonderful. Anyway, so, so what happened is you're, you're, you're a doughboy, and you're in this trench, and about uh, 50 yards that way, are, and, and you look to your right and your left, there's a guy wearing a British insignia or a French insignia or an Italian insignia, and 50, 100, 150 yards that way are people with, with German insignias with a, a, a pitted helmet or an a Austro-Hungarian insignia or the a signet from Turkey. And so you charge and you shoot those guys who try to capture them and take this trench and in in, in easily one of the most stupid, horrendous, avoidable wars in the history of mankind. But that's what happened. Today, church, our enemies don't wear uniforms. They strap bombs on the bodies of women that they've raped 
and they push him in the marketplace and they detonate it. They get eight-year-old boys and they train them to be sharpshooters and put them out there in the middle of these cities to shoot Americans or allied troops. They fly planes into buildings and they do it in the name of God, which is a bizarre, horrendous thing. There's, a, there's an analysis there to what we're facing today. I was reading Proverbs 5. That's where I was. Proverbs 5 is a great chapter to read occasionally about sexual purity. It says this. My son, be attentive to my wisdom and incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood and sharp as a double-edged sword, and her feet go down to death, and her steps follow the path to Sheol, and she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O oh sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your best years to those who have no mercy. Lest strangers take away your strength and you give your labor to the house of a foreigner. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and your body are spent. And you will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart despised correction. I, I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ears to their instructions. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembly of the congregation. It's just, it's a powerful passage. But it says this, this is what strikes me. Keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Now, in the thrilling days of yesteryear, every city of any size had their own bourbon street. And you said, man, don't go down that street. That's where immoral women hang out. Or, or in every major city in America, you'll see the advertisements from the interstate, this exit to go to a gentleman's club. What a crock. What an oxymoron. Gentleman's club. And you say, hey man, don't take that exit. I don't care if Chick-fil-A is next to it. Be somewhere else today. That type of thing. Don't go there. <clears throat> Listen, today, Bourbon Street is in our home, in our bedrooms, on our iPhones. So I'm, trying, I'm going to be very gentle here. If you are a parent of a child and they have unfettered access to the internet, you are not wise. You say, well, my, my child would never look at pornography. Yes, they would. They're sinners just like their mama and daddy. So you guard them, church. Parents, you guard them. You talk to them. A lot of you parents, now forgive me here, want to act like your ward in June Cleaver. If you don't know who that is, Google it. Type in, leave it to Beaver, okay? Warden June slept in separate beds because you couldn't show somebody sleeping in the same bed in that day and age in America. Can you believe that? You couldn't go into a bedroom and see a queen size or a king size bed. Separate beds, baby. 
If you have a child and they're in the third grade or fourth grade and you have not talked to them about human sexuality, it's too late. My opinion, if you don't agree with me, see Craig Harris after the service. He'll answer your questions. <laughs> we want to act like, even if your kids, you've got your neighbors. It is out there. And we need to talk about the celebration and the goodness of creation and God's plan for sexuality and just love our kids. Parents, lead out. Grandparents, you're cheerleaders. It's the parents who do it. Now, you can pull the parents aside as a cheerleader or as a, as a booster and say, hey, coach, what's going on in this area? Let's get with the program, but you're, you're, you're in the booster club. And the thing, once again, these things wage war in our soul, for our soul. I told the men this Friday morning, you're never beyond the reach of these things. Man, I wish you were. I'm 64. I thought, you know, when you be 64, you're, you're almost dead when you're 64. I'm not dead. Anyway, maybe next year it'll be better. It's just, it's just, you got you to guard yourself. So the next clause I want to deal with is this. He says, on, on account of, God, of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is God's settled hatred of, 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 uh, of sin. God's settled hatred of sin. Now, anyway, look at this passage, and John Calvin wrote about this so well. He, he said, is the wrath of God here something that is experienced in the present tense, or is it talking about the day of wrath? when God will judge people outside of Christ, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And Calvin says, the text doesn't answer that question, so we have to say it may be both. And I agree with him, it may be both. So I'm going to take, I'm going to take this tack. The, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. He's writing to the church now. He's writing to the church. So I, I think he's saying that because of these things, believers experience the withdrawal of God's smile on their lives, therefore put to death what is earthly in you. I'll give you th two points, just two points. <clears throat> Point number one. When a Christian falls into sin, you do not lose your standing in Jesus. You're declared righteous by the mercy of God through the work of the cross. If you're a believer in Jesus, God views you through the shed blood of the Savior. The depth of his love and his embrace of you as a child adopted doesn't, doesn't change. So understand that. I got to do this very gingerly. And yet, we know that faith without works is dead. That if you're a believer, Part, part, of, part of being a believer is you cry out in your heart, put to death the sin that is here, Lord. By your Holy Spirit, through the power of the Word of God, put this sin to death. See, 1 John chapter 2 says this, verse 19. They went out from us and did not remain with us. For if they had been part of us, they would not have gone out and they would have stayed with us. In other words... A sign of not being a child of God and being a mere professor of a belief system but not really saved is you leave and you don't come back. Now, Christians fall into sin, but they do not stay there. See, hear me? Christians fall into sin, 
But they don't stay there because we have received the Holy Spirit. We are slaves of righteousness. Now, you have to handle this thing very, very gingerly. Your standing isn't changed. But your usefulness and your joy can be incredibly diminished. Westminster Confession of Faith says this. It's in the worship guide. Although believers can never fall from the state of justification, being declared righteous, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg for pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. There are some of you are here today, and, and, and you are in a place of disobedience. And maybe you're the only one who knows about it. But it's killing you. That's good. So I, I plead with you as your pastor to, to renew your faith in repenting, to humble yourself before God. Because sin is destructive, it's a cancer, and it will eat you alive. I don't know if it's unforgiveness. I don't know if it's secret fantasies. I don't know if it's craving, covetous lifestyle. I don't know what it is. There are a lot of things out there. But just, and none of us are above it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Point, point two is this. Sin untunes our spirit. John Owen says it well. Again, he's 1688. Listen. As sin weakens, so it darkens the soul. A thick cloud that spreads itself over the face of the soul and intercepts all the beams of God's love and favor. You can't, you can't see the face of the Father. It takes away all sense of the privilege of our adoption. And if the soul begins to gather up thoughts of consolation, sin quickly scatters them away. So when you're involved in sin, you just can't get a vision of the glory of God and the love of Christ. You just you feel condemned. Man, just run to the cross. So there's a, I don't, I don't know that much about music. I can't play an instrument. Much to my chagrin. I'm, I'm getting older. There are two things I regret well, a lot of things I regret. One is I don't play an instrument, and secondly, I don't speak a foreign language. Maybe I should. I can still learn, I guess. But there is something called the Adagio for Strings, Opus 11, by a guy named Samuel Barber. And every time I hear it, I love classical music. Every time I hear it, I want to cry. It is so beautiful. And so a few weeks ago, I thought, oh, you know, I've never, I wonder about the guy who wrote this. So I did a study of his, this guy's life, looked up some articles. And he was a man who was given to horrific depression, led a sexually profligate life, and ended up losing all of his friends. And yet he wrote this music that makes me want to weep. And I, as I, I listen to it, I think, did Samuel Barber ever really hear this music? Because sin takes away our ability to hear and see. It, it takes away the ability to really Taste the goodness of, of, of a creator God. So, I, I am not, I'll just tell you, I, I am not a lover of cake. I'm just not. Oatmeal raisin cookies. 
pies, cobbler, or the manna of heaven. But I'm just not a cake lover, except, except for one cake. There's a lady on our staff who's a delightful person, and I won't tell you her name, but it's Crystal. <laughs> and Crystal works in our children's department, does a great job. And we will have a staff gathering, like for Christmas, or we had a retirement party for Robert McCants last week, just a dear friend. And so we have this, this food out. And when we have these big parties, Crystal will make a chocolate cake that makes you want to stand up, salute the flag, and sing, God bless America. I mean, it is so good. And I, here's the, I'm not a cake lover, but boy, whenever I hear that Crystal is making a cake, I get excited. So this past Monday, we had a, a gathering and walked in the, the Welcome Center, which is such a joy. Man, I love the Welcome Center. And they had the food set out, and I looked at the food, and I saw at the end of the line a chocolate cake. And I walked over to Crystal and said, Crystal, did you make that chocolate cake? She said, yeah. I said, yes. Glory be to the Father. <laughs> and, and so being the servant that I am, I made sure that everybody went through and got their plate full and got their dessert before I did. Because if that's the case, whatever's left is fair game. And so I go through and give my plate and I get the chocolate cake and I get a piece of chocolate cake and I'm going, oh man. And she's standing there and she said, I know you love my cake. Would you like to take a piece home for Sarah? I said, yes. <laughs> and she said, is this big enough? I said, oh, no, no, she, she likes more than that. So she, she cut that and she gave it to me and then she said, would you like another piece to take home? And I said, praise God, yes, I would. <laughs> And uh, I, I said, you know, we have to have communion together tonight over chocolate cake, and it'd be wrong for her to eat it by herself. So she, I had two big pieces of chocolate cake. I thought, this is so good. I put it, in a cup, put it together, and I sat down. I started eating my meal, and I thought, oh, the chocolate cake's coming. And so I finished my meal, and I took a bite of that chocolate cake that is, is delightful, and it wasn't very good. It just wasn't, I, 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 I don't taste it. And I said, note to self, as you can tell, I've had a bad cold for weeks. I really haven't had much of an appetite. I should be skinnier than I am, believe me. I've had this metallic taste in my mouth because of the medications. And I couldn't taste Crystal's chocolate cake. That's what sin does. Sin takes away your ability to taste, to savor. Sin is destructive. And we all deal with it one degree or another. And so the Apostle Paul says, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature. I thought of some of the promises real quickly in the Psalms. I was reading through the Psalms, thinking about this passage. Psalm 15 says this, talks about what, 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 what kind of individual really knows God, and he talks about how he lives, and then he says this, he who does these things shall never be moved. I said, well, let's go to Psalm 45, it's, you know, 30, 30 plus 15. And Psalm 45 says this regarding the person who walks with the Lord. It says, you, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I thought, wow, Lord, as we love righteousness and as we hate wickedness, 
May we, may we be anointed with the oil of gladness and joy and celebration. Or Psalm 75 talks about humility and it says, this, it says don't lift up your horn on high or your power on high or speak with a haughty neck. And the last verse says, all the horns of the wicked or the power of the wicked I will cut off, but the horn or the power of the righteous shall be lifted up. I said, yes. Church, I say to you as a fellow struggler and a fellow sinner, let us put to death the deeds of the body that reside in us. Let us taste the sweetness of Jesus and walk as his people. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today and thank you for the joy and the hope and the purpose that comes knowing Christ. And Lord, we pray against sin uh, whether it's lust or pornography or immorality or covetousness or runaway passions or evil desires or malice or unforgiveness or a talkative, gossiping spirit or whatever. They're, they're just out there. We pray that you, by your grace and for your glory, by the power you bring Holy Spirit as the Word of God is brought into our lives, would break these things and you give us hope and joy and purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.